Good morning, everyone. Oh, I, uh, I think maybe some people decided that the sun was more important than church this morning or something. I don't know. <laughs> Just kidding. We're going to be in Luke 5.27, but before we get started, I wanted to uh, uh, just share with you that uh, some of our prayers have been answered. Uh, the Gilbert family, I have permission to say their names now. But, um, so uh, uh, Kevin and Olya and um, Josh and, oh my goodness, the other one. They anyhow, they they uh, he, uh, just uh, left yesterday to he he received a, a great job and so the um, they are uh, Carl and Kel, Carol Gilbert's family. They were in Ukraine and uh, she still has family out there, so certainly be praying for them. Uh, but uh, he uh, received a job um, because I feel they'll probably be here quite some time. So thank you for all your prayers. I know that we're all going to miss them. And so if you see, I know Carl and Carol are going to be really missing them. So if you see them, just give a little bit of extra love to them. Um, but, uh, but yeah, God's answering prayer in that. And we'll continue praying for Ukraine. If you would turn with me to Luke chapter five, I feel like everybody's over here. I'm just going <laughs> to Luke chapter five. Luke 5.27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth and said to him, follow me. Leaving everything behind, he rose and followed him. Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Our merciful, holy God, we thank you for giving us this uh, beautiful, warm Sunday to gather as a worshiping community, to worship here, and uh, Lord, even to go out afterwards rejoicing in our day, thinking about your word. We surrender our hearts to you, that we might be made clean by the washing of your word. Lord, teach us to follow you. Lord, cause us to receive your scriptures with submission, awe, reverence, and, and a willingness this morning. Help us to understand grace and to see ourselves for who we are, that we might live in grace. God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would dwell powerfully with us here would enter this place that nothing said would be not of him and that everything said would be of him. Lord, as we open your word, as we receive what you've given us to know you by. And so we give this time over to you and to the study of your scriptures in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. There are probably few stories as uncomfortable as many of the true events that took place in Europe during World War II. We can read of Simon Wiesenthal in a concentration camp being called to speak to a young Nazi member of the SS in private. The Nazi was mortally wounded and could not die in peace without confessing the atrocities that he had committed against Jewish people, including children, and receiving forgiveness from a Jewish person. And Wiesenthal had that moral dilemma of whether or not to allow this evil man to die in peace or to walk away and say nothing. You may have read about Corrie Ten Boom and the family, friends in her community who betrayed her Dutch family and community as they hid Jews from the Nazis and ultimately all that leading to the death of her beloved father and sister as they all suffered horribly in concentration camps. Or how after the war she was confronted with the decision over whether to forgive two guards from Ravensbrook, one of whom was particularly cruel to her sister. I spoke many years ago to a very tall middle school kid. He was like, he was like 12 and like taller than me. And he, he had a very heavy African accent. Turns out he was from Sudan. 
And he shared with me how his family had fled, fled civil war in the, which the Muslims in the north had forced political famine on the Christians in the south and how they would lure children in with food and then offer um, to continue feeding them if they would betray and kill their parents. Many of us have been betrayed, but few of us have suffered the kind of costly betrayal that took place under Adolf Hitler's regime or that takes place in Africa. And it seems similar stories are being written right now in Russia and Ukraine. We often read passages like those in the Sermon on the Mountain because we, have, we, we live in this charmed part of this world. We read it through these rose-colored, make love, not war, give peace a chance, glasses. But these passages are much heavier and difficult than we are often able to perceive in our own scopes of experience. Passages like this. You've heard, this is Matthew 5, 43 and 44. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's a lot easier to do when somebody has uh, been dishonest in order to get a promotion over you than it is when they have killed your family. In the U.S., we're still arguing over the injustices of nearly 200 years ago and how they are, or if they are, still impacting our culture and how to deal with that. None of us have memories of the actual injustices and none of the injustices most of us have witnessed or experienced in our lives have come close to slavery in the South or Nazi concentration camps or the forced betrayals of civil wars in Africa. How can we show mercy to the most wicked people in our world? Today, we are going to meet a man who would have been seen by the Jews as a wicked traitor. He would have been seen in that day much like a Jew who helped the Nazis in World War II. You would have seen them with that level of disdain. There were not any classes of people that would have been more hated by the Jewish people than a Jewish man who would, ha who would extort the Jews on behalf of the Romans for their own benefit, a tax collector. And that's not hyperbole either. They really saw them that way. Luke 5.27, after this, he went and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. This is Jesus observing this tax collector. If you recall, we noticed a group of events that took place in the same time period. Jesus demonstrated his authority when he cast a demon out of a demon-possessed man and then over illness when he commanded the fever to depart from Simon's mother-in-law and then his authority over nature when the fish filled Simon's nets, almost sunk the boats, and then and then over what is and isn't clean when he touched the leper. And last week we saw the capstone of his authority, which is the authority to forgive sin. Now we can almost see all of that as setting up for what occurs in this passage and the next. And we start with the words after this. So after all of that, we're going to see Jesus hanging out with people who the, the moral majority of the time would keep as much distance as possible from. To this point, Mark tells us that Jesus is out preaching by the Sea of Galilee. In Mark 2, 13, it says, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Now, I want us to notice something here that's difficult to see in the English. That word saw, when Jesus saw them, it's what's called a deponent verb. It means that Jesus was actually out looking. So it could be in the middle of passive sent, uh, voice, but it's an active word. It's an active thing. And so Jesus was being active and intentional about what he observed. And we want to be careful not to add anything to the text that isn't there, right? It doesn't say anything that he saw anything about Levi except that he was a 
tax collector. It doesn't have any indication that he observed some sort of inner goodness or decision that Levi would make or an emotional conflict about his vocation or any of that. All the text tells us is that the subject, Jesus, actively observed the object, Levi, and his traitorous vocation. In fact, I find it interesting how it doesn't say that he saw Levi who happened to be a tax collector. But that he saw a tax collector whose name happened to be Levi. His identity as a tax collector is what's important. Now the tax, tax collectors might have been seen as worse than prostitutes. They were considered literal robbers because they were. They could not serve in the courts. They weren't allowed in the synagogues. They were functionally excommunicated from Jewish practice. And I, and I want you to notice what this filthy tax collector is doing. He's actively sitting at his tax booth. It's an action. He's looking for anything but to take, or rather for anything to take money from his fellow Jews. He's looking for anything but that or anything else he's not looking for. He isn't looking for Jesus. He doesn't say, it doesn't say that he saw or noticed or observed Jesus. He wasn't looking for anything but to take their money. And here's, here's how Levi's job worked. Now the Romans collected taxes through a system called tax farming. They assessed taxes to a district and then they sold the right to collect those taxes to the highest bidder. Right, this is, this is fun so far, right? But because of the lack of checks and balances, it's not like they had like computers or anything. Um, and so their rec with their record keeping, there was a lack of that and you can see how that would invite massive corruption. There are two tax categories in this Jewish law. The first was fixed taxes. That's what everybody paid, uh, no matter what. So there was a poll tax that every, and it was a fixed amount, um, that every man and woman would have to pay simply because they were alive. And then there was a ground tax, which is a tenth of all the grain, wine, and oil that was uh, harvested or made. And then there was an income tax. Now brace yourselves here. You're never going to believe this. Their income tax, 1%. Can you believe it? Now... With the, with, the, with the fixed taxes, there wasn't a lot of room for extortion. But the second tax category is a different story. It was duties and tolls, which opened the door for the tax collectors to make absolute fortunes through extortion. And they would, they would tax people for using roads, docking in the harbors, import and ac export duties, sales tax. Kate Hughes felt like that the, uh, the wheel tax was especially oppressive. That's where they would tax each wheel on a cart. Evidently, Kent Hughes has never pulled a trailer on the toll roads in northern Indiana. It's been years since I've done that, and I'm still angry about that extortion. That was, that, I, I get the anger toward the tax collectors. As, but, but here's the thing. As bad as we have it here, the tax collectors in, Israel's, in Israel at that time were far worse. Do you remember many years ago when it was quite a bit safer to go down to Tijuana, or as we called it, TJ, right? Remember that? Remember what you had to do, right? You didn't keep all your money in one place. You, 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 had, you took some extra money and you put it somewhere in case you got stopped by the federales. And why did you do that? Because you had to bribe them. If you didn't bribe them, then you'd get a huge fine, you'd go to jail or whatever, right? So you had to have bribe money for the federales um, because that way they would let you go and they would stop you for anything or nothing. That's what they were literally doing. It was just looking for bribes, right? And we knew the system. We knew how it worked. And so we carried money for it, right? Um, or we were smart and we didn't go to TJ. But um, it's a similar, similar scenario here, right? At the moment, and that wasn't all of the federalities. I think it was just some. I, I don't really, I only went down there like a couple times, and it was always for mission trips. But um, at the moment Jesus sees Levi, that's what he's doing. He's extorting people. Um, he's on the roadside literally extorting money from his fellow Jews like a bridge troll. Like, how does Jesus, a Jewish man, react to what he sees? Jew, Jesus is Jewish. Is he looking... 
does he just pay the taxes and roll his eyes? Does he, does he try to avoid eye contact? No. Two words. Follow me. Follow me. Verse 27, Luke 5, 27. He said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Wow. This is why, the, you know, the, the, the way that Jesus said this, it wasn't a request. It was an imperative command. You must. So you can almost read it. You must follow me. As if he had that authority, which ultimately he did. Apart from the Holy Spirit working in Levi's life, I'm at a loss as to why Levi responded the way he did. Levi had money. He was making more. He didn't need to be liked. He was rich. We see throughout the scriptures that, and in history that wealth often can be a powerful obstacle to faith, can't it? But here Levi ditches his ledgers and his records and presumably his take from that day and he obeys Jesus. Levi left his stuff behind in his past. And that's what repentance means. It's a change of heart, mind, and direction. It's, this is a function of God sovereignly intervening in Levi's life. And the response of Levi is to follow. Je Jesus did what Jesus does. Jesus is always consistent with his character. But Levi is changed from who he is. Last week, we, we saw that obedience to Jesus leads to worship. That, that worship will follow repentance, right? And, and in verse 29, this is what it says. It says, Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at a table with him. Levi continues to respond to the call of Christ by throwing a party. Fires up the grill, slaps on the carne asada, because what's a barbecue without carne asada? He invites all his friends who happen to be depraved trolls like he is because nobody else wanted anything to do with them. And Levi's identity is, was as a tax collector. He turned from everything. He left his identity at the tax booth. See, when we turn from something, we also turn to something, right? And what did, what did Levi turn to? To Jesus. He turned to Jesus. That's, that's what we're told here. You can turn from sin and to something else, right? But this is important because we often mistakenly see our Christian faith as what we do and don't do. We see the distinction between believers and unbelievers as being largely behavioral, right? And there are some things that Christians must do. And there are some things that Christians must not do. But the difference, the real difference is Jesus. We have Jesus. And when we, when we turned from our sin, we didn't turn to good works. We didn't turn to a different way of living. It's not a self-help group. We turned to Jesus. And then he came in. He transformed us from the inside out. It's again that we see that that worship is contagious. None of this is happening in secret. In fact, this is what Gar David Garland said, said about this party. Among sinners and outcasts, Jesus is an honored guest. Last Saturday, I took my boys and their cousin down to Temecula for haircuts. And this barbershop that we usually go to was closed, so we tried a new place on the other end of Old Town Temecula. It's bigger, it's busier. It also seems to have a little bit of a rougher crowd. Um, they still do kids' hair. It wasn't, you know, really rough and scary. I mean, it's Temecula. But, and all the barbers, they're covered in tattoos, and it kind of has this real biker lounge feel to it. I felt right at home. It was great. Um, I loved it. But it turns out the barber cutting my hair is an outlaw. He's in an outlaw motorcycle gang. Young guy, 25 years old. And, you know, I mean, we had the motorcycle thing in common. Not the gang thing, just the motorcycle thing. Promise. But we, we, had, we had these great conversations. 
Well, he cut my hair. We talked about, he shared about his past and that he went to a Christian school when he was younger and all this. We had some great conversations. Really nice guy. And, you know, I told him that I'd be back and I will because I just thought that it was the coolest place. And, and they gave great haircuts and trimmed the beard nicely. So they really did a good job. I, I got my tattoos. I've got a couple of them. I got those from my cousin who was raised Lutheran. Um, but she doesn't really identify with any kind of central Christian belief system. She and I have been close for a long time because we have a lot in common, except worldview. We are polar opposites when it comes to worldview. But when she was working on my tattoos, they both, each of them have uh, scriptural meanings. They're straight out of the scriptures. And so we talked for hours on end on multiple, multiple sessions about the meanings of that scripture together. I, I think that that's so cool. I, I, I could have gone to a, to a Christian tattoo artist, right? But I, I think it was cool that I get to have these conversations. I, it's interesting that as we, as we read on, it's the religious leaders who rejected Jesus, not the unrighteous people. The unrighteous people often welcomed him as we read through the New Testament and, and, and realized that this is speaking of external righteousness because the reality is if you reject Jesus, you are unrighteous, period. But, but Jesus welcomed and received the welcome of the unrighteous people. He made his company with them. In, in this case... The only repentant one we know of at the time is Levi. Although, you know, it is implied that Jesus had concern for the other unrighteous people in this party as well. But, but the only one we know is Levi. And notice that Levi's tax collector buddies are all sitting like he was. They, they, they weren't out there looking for anything, looking for something better. They weren't looking like, I mean, they were rich. What did they need, right? They were just actively engaging and eating and drinking at Levi's party. So whoever's going to know Jesus was going to be sought out by Jesus. It wasn't, they weren't going to be looking for him. Levi's friends are nonetheless affected by his honoring of Jesus. Maybe much like the Pharisees were affected by the paralytics healing last week. But there's another layer here. Go to verse 30. Luke 5.30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? See, the Pharisees were kind of like the moral majority of the time. They were law-abiding citizens that lived morally upright lives, and they didn't like to be around people who lived licentiously, and they wanted to influence society to become more moral. Here's how R.C. Sproul describes them. He says, the Pharisees believed in salvation by segregation. By separating themselves from the Amharets, the, the people of the land, by which meant the people of the dirt, the dirty people, the outcasts and sinners. To the Pharisees, salvation meant staying a safe distance from such people. Because if you came too close to them, you could become contaminated. In fact, the word Pharisee comes from a word that means the separated ones. We tend to see Pharisees as cold-hearted legalists, but their concern was to restore the morality of Torah and to restore righteousness to Judaism. Purity was at the center of their faith. In many ways, they were a lot like some of us, or most of us. Many of their ideas were reasonable, just as many of ours are. In fact, Romans 12.2, this is some of the best advice in Scripture. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. But see, here's the problem. One of the issues with the Pharisees is that they were more concerned about what good Jews don't do rather than looking at the positive side, rather than being concerned with what they should be doing. Often, if we're more focused on what God wants from us, we just have less time to think about the boundaries that we feel other people might be crossing. 
there's plenty to do. Look, we got to love God. We got to love our neighbors. We got to look after the orphans and widows or those in needs. We need, to, we need to pray without ceasing. We need to gather as a church community regularly. We need to learn and grow from the scriptures. The list just goes on and on. And when we're more concerned about that, we spend less time checking the boxes of all the things that we don't do. <coughs> and then comparing our checklist to everybody else's. And listen, we're going to know when we're pushing up against the boundaries. But there's, there's so much for us to do within those boundaries that God has given. And we really don't need to spend all of our time thinking about what we can't do. Just simply because we're Christians. And that was the problem with the Pharisees. They were so worried about creating boundaries to keep them and to keep everyone else from the risk of getting too close to the real boundaries and falling into sin that their own boundaries became the focus of their faith. So the Pharisees are becoming annoyed with Jesus' choice of friends here because these people were not moral people. So what are they really asking? Are their questions as sincere as they were when Jesus forgave the paralytic. Let's go back there. Luke 5.20. Luke 5.20 says, And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question your hearts, which is easier to say? your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. You would think that they would be more upset with him claiming to do something that only God can do. But here, they ask the disciples about who they're hanging out with. Notice they're not even addressing Jesus directly here. They, they, they're addressing what few disciples he has so far. And their objections are not unlike the objections that I think some of us have heard coming from our own team. Like, oh, that doesn't sound very Christian, does it? Oh, should a Christian be hanging out with those people? Oh, should, should a Christian watch, listen to, play, read, do that? Listen. We, we must, we must reject sin. That, that isn't the issue here. The issue isn't whether or not we reject sin. The issue is how do we reject sin without rejecting the sinners? And what do we do with things that may not technically be sin, but just don't seem like something a decent believer should be involved in? The issue is that Jesus and the disciples look bad because they're putting themselves in environments that good Jews should not expose themselves to. And you remember back when God called David to be king, he sends Samuel, Samuel, and he's leading Samuel to David, who's to be the next king of Israel. And what does he say about David's brother? Let's read that in 1 Samuel 16. It says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look in his, on his appearance, or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward experience, but the Lord looks on the heart. See, we need to be careful how we assess other believers because we risk becoming like the Pharisees. There are some, there are some obvious boundaries, <laughs> right? But then there are boundaries that may seem obvious to some, but maybe not to others. And, and we need to be really careful to root our assessments in grace. There's an, there's an organization here that deals with uh, the pornography problem, which is, by the way, just as much a problem among confessing Christians. In fact, if we're normal like any other church, half of us have looked at it this week. It's an issue. It's huge. And they have, so they have this accountability software and other resources to help you if you've found yourself caught up in porn addiction. In fact, I would say that it, if that's you, visit triplexchurch.com 
xxxchurch.com. Be real careful. Don't misspell it because you might fall across something different. Um, but, you know, help, uh, do something to help get that under control. They, they even have products for families to help protect your kids from ending up on the wrong websites. And there is a cost to it, but I think it's, it's worth it because, because porn addiction can be devastating. The reason I bring all that up is that this organization, Triple uh, X Church, they have people who actually go in and they, they're involved with um, the people that have been sucked. And a lot of it's people that have been trafficked and stuff, but they go in and they uh, go to the adult entertainment industry conve conventions. They work to help people out of that industry while pointing them to Jesus. Um, but, but they've often been criticized for the places that they go and engage with porn stars in. Um, now listen, they, they don't participate or promote it or anything like that. Just the opposite, in fact. But the environments that they are in expose them to a bit of criticism from their own team. And I, and I, I would probably caution, too, that it, it sounds like a very risky ministry and probably only for a select and very strong few. But I, I think we need to be careful to root our criticisms in grace. Remember that it's not God's rejection of sin that leads to repentance, but his kindness to the sinner. Romans 2, if you turn there, Romans 2, 1. Romans 2, 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, because you... The judge practiced the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You see, the Pharisees were so blinded by their own sin by looking upon the sins of others. Outwardly, they were righteous, but they still fell short because their unrighteousness was veiled and hidden from them. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus wasn't afraid to hang out with the people he wasn't supposed to hang out with. David Garland said this, his transferable holiness destroys the impurity so that it no longer has the capacity to render others impure. I think, I think the first question from last week from the Pharisees, I think it was sincere. They had no reason to withhold compassion from the paralytic. But this one rubbed them the wrong way. And the reason is that the, the paralytic was helpless. But the tax collector, he could have chosen a better way. He didn't have to take that job. This, this Jesus you follow is supposed to be a faithful Jew, Jewish rabbi. Isn't he? Don't you know, you know, didn't you know that all these people you're hanging out with, with the wrong, are in the wrong crowd? You're, you're, this Jesus guy is hanging out with the wrong crowd and you're following him into it? Aren't you aware of what these tax collectors do? Why? Why are you hanging out with them? See, it wasn't an op opposition to a belief system. It was an opposition to their lifestyle. The Pharisees failed to recognize that the helpless human condition was no less evident in them. How often do, do we somehow feel like our sins are better than the next person's sins? I'm not going to lie. I'm going to be honest here. I've said it, and I know that some, I know some of you have said this too. At least I didn't do that. Right? We, we've said it, some of us. We get, we get so fixated on behavior that we forget how desperately we need Jesus. Because the righteousness of the Pharisees was not rooted in grace and mercy, it actually created distance between them and God, 
rather than making them closer to him. They, they failed to understand the character of God because of their own self-righteousness. Righteousness that is not achieved through forgiveness by God's grace and mercy is self-righteousness. It, it points to self rather than God. And, and Jesus answers them here in, in Luke 5, verse 31 and 32. Luke 5, 31 and 32. He answers and says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Well, I want you to notice something. Who did the Pharisees question? He questioned the disciples, right? Probably Simon, James, John, maybe Andrew, maybe, maybe a couple others, but who, who answered the Pharisees? Who answered back? Jesus answered back. I think that's interesting. And he's not just defending his own actions, but the actions of his followers. They're, they're hanging out with the unsavory people too, with the dirty people. They're, they're making themselves dirty by this. The, the way Jesus replies is kind of a slam on some of this whole salvation by separation mentality. Those who are well have no need of a physician. Now let me ask, is Jesus suggesting that the Pharisees were well? No! <laughs> no! He, he was obviously indicating that they thought they were. By no means was he saying that they were well. The reason that they separated themselves in the first place from filthy people was that they knew they needed to be saved from sin. Torah made that abundantly clear. And so they avoided the, they avoided the sinners around them. And that would at least make them comparatively clean, right? So when Jesus said this, I think they may have recognized that he was actually putting them in the same category as the sick, as the tax collectors and sinners. That he didn't give, well, you're only, you only need a little bit of forgiving. These people are really bad. No, he put them all together, right? We all need Jesus. None of us is well. And if none of us is well, we have no business comparing ourselves with others, really, right? Like, we all need Jesus. The Pharisees let their assessment of behavior get in the way of seeing the grace of God, which is big enough to cover any behavior, good, bad, questionable, whatever. Jesus is bigger. And I, I if I recognize my need for grace, it makes everyone else look a little bit better, doesn't it? Like, Listen, if I'm honest, I'm the worst sinner in this room. That's because I know my heart. I, I don't know anyone else's heart. I, I know mine. And it is in desperate need of Christ's daily transforming work. I have enough sin in my own life to go around than, than to go around trying to figure out whether this person's in sin for what they watch on television, whether that person for the music that they like or that person for how they spend their free time or that person for who they hang out with. I've got enough sin in my own life, you guys. Sure, my job as a pastor is to give biblical wisdom and guidance. And I'll do that. I do that. And I help people work through those things and I help them search through the scriptures. But in the end, how they move forward, that's between them and God. And it's not my place con to condemn anyone unless they are clearly in sin, in real sin. Had Jesus and the disciples helped extort money, that would be a different issue. And the Pharisees probably felt like they were, they were the, the disciples here were validating the tax collectors, like saying it was okay. So it wasn't entirely an unreasonable question. But Jesus is showing a better way. And it boils down to that last statement in verse 32. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You see, the Pharisees, they should have been easier to reach because they were already following the truth that had been given. But their hearts were the hardest to chip through. It was the ones most distant from truth who changed most fully and immediately. And I would say most of us here, if we were honest, can probably identify in some way with the Pharisees. 
And that's why we come to the Bible church, because we love the truth, right? We desire to obey God's word so that we might be holy. We want righteousness to reign in our lives, and those are good things, and we should pursue those things. But we also need to heed the warnings here about looking too much at outward appearances and forgetting grace. I also imagine there are probably some here who would identify more with those tax collectors, right? Maybe you don't fit neatly in with the Christian crowd, with the moral majority, as it were, with the church people. Maybe you're someone who's been hurt by Christians before. Maybe you were even in sin at that time, or maybe you weren't. Maybe maybe you were seeking Christians to demonstrate forgiveness, and they fell short. Listen, remember, Jesus is bigger than all that. Maybe you're living in sin now. How would you respond to the call of Jesus saying, follow me? Levi had more self-awareness than the Pharisees. He knew that he was rotten to the core. The Pharisees followed all the rules. They pursued godliness and they became blinded to their own sinfulness. There's a little bit of something here for everyone. Listen, we, and we're not going to compare anybody to Jesus. If you think Jesus is the one that you're being compared, that you should compare yourself to, let's talk about that. But that's off the table. Some of us may be more like the disciples. We're following Jesus, but he's leading us into places where people in the church have some serious questions. Some of us may be more like the Pharisees. We do it all right. We do our daily devotions faithfully. We, we're in church every week. We listen to all the right podcasts. We read all the right books. Our playlist is full of all the right worship songs. Uh, people know who we are by our Facebook pages and what they see when they walk into our homes. Some of us may be like Levi. We're broken sinners. We have nothing to offer and, and can't figure out why Jesus would dare forgive us of what we've done. But he's given that call. Follow me. So step after step, we're doing our best to follow him. Some of us are like the tax collectors and sinners at the party. We're we're trying to figure out what this is all about. But this morning, we've seen Jesus. And it seems like we should do something about that. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Listen, if you're like the disciples, you, you may have the hardest job because you need to follow Jesus while you're doing your best not to offend unnecessarily. And the hardest part is that Jesus will answer for you, but it's so tempting to be constantly defending ourselves, isn't it? Be careful. Also, that you are not putting yourself into compromising situations unnecessarily. Matthew 5 says this, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus speaking says, Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. like the Pharisees, you're, you're probably doing great. You're living holy lives that nobody can really call into question. But beware that your righteousness, the righteousness that you have, is rooted in the grace of God alone. and does not become self-righteousness. And that you extend that grace to others around you. Matthew 5, 6 says, blessed are those, blessed, that word blessed means oh how happy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And if you're like Levi, you were in sin. You you dropped it all to follow Jesus, but you're broken. You have nothing to offer, but you rejoice in his mercy. You tell your friends, keep rejoicing. Keep rejoicing. Know that there will be some Christians who will be discouraging. Leave the past in the past. Cling to the word of God and follow Jesus. Listen to this in Matthew 5, verses 3 and 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, 
for they shall be comforted. And that's speaking literally of mourning over your own sinfulness. If we're, if we're saved, if we know Jesus, we're probably, each of us here can probably identify with different amounts of the, each of those categories there. But if you're like the, the other tax collectors at the party, you're a sinner, right? You see all of us who claim to be following Jesus, and then you also see that we don't see eye to eye on things all the time. We have our own problems. We do our own bickering. But today, this morning, you've seen Jesus. I have one piece of advice. Repent. Turn to Jesus. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Jesus compared the healing of sin to physical healing. If Jesus is calling you this morning, leave your sin behind. Follow him. And if that's you, come see me or or Clint or somebody afterwards so we can pray with you. But for all of us who know Jesus, he found us the way that he found Levi. We, we weren't looking for him before he was seeking us. He saw a lost sinner bound for hell, content to continue in their sin. And he commanded us to follow him. Are you following Jesus today? What reason is there to not publicly rejoice in that? And what's, that's, what, that's what communion is. It's a feast. But we remember our Lord and what he accomplished at the cross on our behalf. There's great joy in that. If you've repented and you've placed your trust in Jesus for salvation, we invite you to join us in proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes by participating in communion. We would ask, please hold your elements here uh, as they are passed out until uh, we are able to partake together and take that time to reflect on the undeserved call of Jesus. Follow me that we are so undeserving of. And if you've not yet crossed that line of faith, we ask you let the elements pass you by and consider following Jesus. And if you would do that, please afterwards see me, see Pastor Clint, uh, who will be up here. Uh, you can see Lance in the back there, Bill. Um, there are a number of leaders here that you could see. We wanna pray for you. But for us, this is reason to rejoice as he calls us follow me as we realize the depth of our own sinfulness and come to him with grateful hearts. Our holy God, we surrender our thoughts and attitudes to you. Thank you, God, that you have chosen to call us filthy sinners to follow you. Thank you for cleansing us of our sin that has so completely corrupted us. Forgive us, Lord, of our sins, for we have not loved you with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We judge unrighteously, and we fail to recognize our own sinfulness as we look upon the sins of our neighbors. Forgive us, O oh God. God, make us holy. Give us the humility to understand who you are, to recognize who we are, and to live redemptively in the name of Jesus. Give us the strength and will to be obedient and to follow you. God, be present with us now as we prepare to receive this sacred, holy feast that is before us. There's joyfulness in us as we receive. Jesus has removed from us the debt of sin and called us to follow him. It is by your unending grace that the blood of Jesus was poured out. That terrible, wretched, evil, beautiful cross. Lord, humble us now as we prepare to receive this holy feast in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior.
each one of us is so incredibly unworthy of this bread and this cup. And yet his worthiness has been counted to us so that we might receive with great joy. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. Open the foot of your chalice there and see where the bread is. Pull that out. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake. If you would carefully also open this other <clears throat> side here, it, it'll stain, so careful not to pop it too loose, too, too quickly. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us partake. And he continues, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Lord, we cry, come Lord Jesus. We await you. We await your holy presence. We long to serve forever with humility and with gratitude and on your terms in your kingdom forever. Lord, we offer ourselves over to you as living sacrifices of praise. Go before us as we enter this week and go out these doors into our mission field. And we ask for your strength and your supernatural joy in doing so. And we ask these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.